continuing the sermon series we're doing from the book of Mark, and today's passage comes from Mark 9. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Gary. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that begin the New Testament. And it's the record of Jesus, what he said, what he did, what was the focus of his attention and his um, interaction with other people. Um, And we've seen, as we've been looking through uh, the Gospel, that there is a a midpoint where everything changes. There are 16 chapters in Mark, and uh, we've just finished chapter 8, and we're in chapter 9 now. And the first part of the Gospel is all about Jesus interacting with, really, the people and the leaders of Israel. He travels around Galilee. He heals people. He teaches. Huge crowds come out to meet him in the wilderness. He performs miracles. He's really announcing to Israel his presence in that country. Until you get to chapter 8, where Peter, uh, who is the one whose um, record and uh, reminiscences are the basis of the Gospel of Mark, where Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. That is, the Christ. Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek mean the same thing the anointed one of God, the one sent by God to redeem his people. And once that has happened, the whole tenor of the gospel changes. Instead of primarily public events, Jesus focuses very specifically on the disciples. And instead of wandering around the north of Israel, he begins his journey south towards Jerusalem and the cross. In fact, when we see here, verse 33, they came to Capernaum. They're coming from the north of Israel down back through Galilee. This is actually where uh, many of the disciples came from. And they're on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus has just told them that he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to suffer. He's going to be resurrected. So this is a switch. It's now all about preparing the disciples for what's going to happen in Jerusalem. So let's read it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? So if you recall, in the north, there was the um, moment where Jesus goes up the mountain and is transfigured, gives the disciples a glimpse of his future glorified uh, reality, what it's going to look like after the resurrection. Comes down the mountain and then starts to journey south. 
Capernaum is where he gathered the disciples. This house might actually even be Peter's house. They, they gathered in one of the houses of the disciples before. And so this is the disciples back on home territory, home turf. They would have been familiar back in the familiar uh, habitat that they were used to. What were you arguing about on the road? Jesus has just announced to them that he's going to die, that he's going to suffer. And so perhaps on the road, he was quiet or withdrawn, thinking about what was happening, and they were talking, apparently arguing among themselves. What were they arguing about? They were arguing about who was the greatest. Who was the, um, the prime disciple, the head disciple? Possibly they're responding, this would have been very selfish, they're responding to the idea that Jesus is going to die and leave them. Who's going to take over? Um, maybe they're just reacting to the fact that um, Jesus only took Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and they're trying to figure out what, do those, what does that mean. But anyway, they know that it's crazy. They know that to argue about who's the greatest in the presence of Jesus is absurd. After all, they're only there because of him. These were uneducated, primarily fishermen, working men, who would have been about, the, their lives would have just been about existing. It was Jesus who called them. It is Jesus who is leading them. Jesus taking the initiative, Jesus lending them his authority when they do anything, Jesus lending them his power, Jesus teaching them. They don't have anything themselves. Everything they do is based on him. And so it's sort of absurd to be arguing about who's the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Sitting down, this is unusual. Usually Jesus teaches them while he's walking or while they're out on the uh, lake. Jesus teaches them around the campfire at night. But here, he sits down to teach them. They're at uh, somebody's house, and sitting down is a sign of authority. It's the king who sits down in the presence of everybody else when they stand. This is an important teaching. In fact, we saw last week that the center of what Jesus was teaching the disciples was the fact that he would die and then he'd be raised again. Now, he is teaching them what kinds of people, what kinds of leaders, what kind of attitude is appropriate for people who are going to be shaped by that message. He said last week, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. He will rise, and the Christian church will begin. What kind of leaders, what kind of attitude, what are the sorts of people who are appropriate in that kingdom, in that church? How should they behave? After all, these are disciples are going to be the future leaders of that church. And then he hits them. Anyone 
who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus is turning the values of the world upside down. He is reorienting his disciples, challenging their and the world's notion of leadership, and saying the kingdom of God is not going to be like the world. Power in the kingdom of God does not accrue to the person who is served by others. Power is the power to serve other people. That is the nature of kingdom power, service. To be servant of everyone is what leadership is all about. He's told them he's going to triumph by going to the cross. The kingdom is not advanced by defeating other people, by bloody victory, but rather by Jesus' death. The death of the king will advance the kingdom. And now he's showing us the values of that kingdom, the complete inversion of the world. By the way, um, this is a still a very shocking thing to say. We're adjacent to New York City, probably the most competitive place anywhere. Try going to a corporation and suggesting that this is how they behave. See what they would say to you. So many people come to New York to make a name for themselves, to advance, to get ahead, to accrue money and power and prestige. I wonder how many come to New York to serve the city, to serve the people in the city. Think of the way we talk about success. The devil take the hindmost. Winning isn't the main thing, it's the only thing. Nice guys finish last. The one who dies with the most toys wins. By the way, I heard that one from a frat guy. When I first came to America, I was 18 years old, and that was sort of the unofficial motto of his fraternity. It was kind of shocking to hear it said explicitly. The one who dies with the most toys wins. He was so into that. He had a beautiful car. Contrast those values with the kingdom values. By the way, striving does not make you happy. I was a pastor in New York for five years, and uh, I saw and met many unhappy people. We had a small group down on Wall Street. It finished at 9 o'clock. More than half the group went to their offices to continue working at 9 o'clock at night. We had a recovery group for burnt-out Wall Street traders, the most miserable group of people you will ever meet. Still living in the city, couldn't afford to live in the city, didn't want to go home. We're turning in desperation to the church. One of them told me um, a story about the incompetence of people in New York. Basically, the idea is if you're good at your job or if you just show up and do your job, you're going to get promoted. And you'll get promoted as long as that is true until you get to the job that you can't really do. And that will be the end of your promotion. And so most people who've been in the city for a while are doing jobs they're really incompetent at and they are deeply unhappy and miserable about it and afraid. Many of them are on drugs. 
Many of them are, are being in analysis. In New York, in a, any place based on striving, you will rise to the level of your incompetence, and that's where you'll stay, and that will be your life and career. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God is not about getting other people to serve you, and not about you personally accruing power, prestige, money. The kingdom of God is about serving each other. Because the kingdom of God is a family. Families do not burn each other out, or at least happy families, healthy families. Families do not use each other to accomplish goals. They are the goal. People are the point. Relationships are the point. I was at a seminar where um, a pastor from uh, Australia was sharing with us the difference between a Christian church achieving things, doing things in the world, and a corporation or uh, a military or some other institution. The way the world mainly gets things done is somebody, a leader, says, we're going to go up that mountain. That's the hill we're going to win. That's the project, the goal we're going to achieve. Charge. And everybody goes to take the mountain, achieve the goal. Most of them are there because they're paid to be there. And the point is the mission, is the mountain. And so they charge. And sometimes you get it, and sometimes you don't. But when you look down from the mountain, you see all the dead bodies, the cost of achieving that goal, the people who are burnt out, the people who are forgotten, the people who are mistreated, the people who were not acknowledged or taken care of, the people who got in the way, all the dead bodies that the mountain has taken. And he said, that is not how churches do things. That is not how the kingdom of God advances. The kingdom of God continually waits and regroups and reconnects with people along the way. Instead of a charge, he draws a series of circles. You advance, and then you go back and make sure everyone is taken care of, that the wounded, those who have been hurt, those who are suffering are acknowledged, and restored and repaired before you go advance again. So it's much slower. It is not primarily about the mountain. It's about the people. But everyone gets to the top. Everyone gets to the goal. And that's the point. Serving each other, helping each other to get to the goal. And you see, Jesus gives the example of a child. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. How do you welcome a child? Well, you humble yourself. In the best sense of the word, you condescend. You don't stay exalted. You descend to the level of that child and give them what they need. You take care of them. You make sure they're safe. 
You feed them. You play with them. You attend to their needs and their well-being rather than your own. That's what it means to be a parent. To love someone else for who they are and take care of them. And what are the characteristics of a child? Why would that be something welcome in the kingdom of God? Well, a child is always learning. The world is big and wonderful, and you can't take anything for granted as a child. You have to be open to learning new things. You've got to be humble in the face of reality, because you never know what's, what's a good thing and what's a bad thing. You live fully in the moment. You don't worry about the future. You experience and deal with what's right in front of you, fully present to the people around you and to the situation you're in. You know, I was listening to um, a motivational talk by uh, a Navy SEAL, and he said the number one problem that he'd seen in the military, in the, in the SEAL community, in uh, and he said it's true in business and it's true in most things of life, is that instead of just dealing with the problem right in front of you, you know, how many push-ups you've got to do, or the swim you've got to do, or the project you've got to do, instead of dealing with that thing right in front of you, right now, the thing that you can actually control, you worry, people worry about the future. And they get overwhelmed by the vastness of what's still to be done and what they don't know. If they would just stay in the moment, deal with this task right now, the person right now, the encounter right now, and then deal with the next problem when it's due, they wouldn't be filled with fear. They wouldn't give up. They could advance. Children do that all the time. Children are centered on their parents. That's the place of safety. That's the most important relationship. When they're afraid, when things get messy or overwhelming, you turn back to your mom and your dad. There's a wonderful social experiment you can see on YouTube where they put parents with their children in this room with a checkerboard floor. And they, sh they measure the attachment of the child to the parent by how does the child explore that room. And a healthy child goes to the nearest squares and then looks back at the parent and then goes back and then goes to further squares and centered on the parent or the person they love, gradually explore the whole room. Always looking at the parent as a source of safety, as a source of protection, as a home base. By the way, if you put a, a person in that room with a dog, the dogs do exactly the same thing. Cats don't care. They just go off. <laughs> Parent-centered home base, focused on the relationship, focused on the parent as the rock, source of security, the reference point. Does that sound like what we should be doing with God? And also, final thought about children, they're playful. They don't take themselves too seriously. You're never going to learn something new or advance or deal with a new situation if you're too full of yourself. 
we become competent about the things that we know. Things that we don't know require us to be stupid. We have to go out and deal with them, and we're going to make mistakes. It's going to be uh, messy, humiliating even. We're going to fall down. We're going to get it wrong. We're going to misunderstand. It might be painful. We have to take a playful, or children take a playful attitude towards the world, and that's what allows them to grow and learn and advance. I think Jesus is saying the same thing about his church and the future leaders. They're illiterate, ignorant, working men. The church has expanded for 2,000 years into an extraordinarily complicated world, complicated by culture, by technology, by distance, by language. If the leaders had been locked into one way of being if their experience in Israel had been the only thing and they had locked that down as this is what leadership looks like, the church couldn't have grown. But playful leaders focused on God, who don't take themselves too seriously, can deal and learn and advance into new places and do new things and not be overwhelmed or afraid can do things they can't even imagine. Leaders should not be worried about who is the greatest. They should not take themselves too seriously. It's all about their relationship and our relationship with God as our Father. John Newton, he was the one that wrote Amazing Grace, said this, if two angels were to receive at the same moment, a commission from God, one to go down and rule the earth's grandest empire, the other to go and sweep the streets of its meanest village. It would be a matter of entire indifference to each which service fell to his lot. The post of ruler or the post of scavenger for the joy of the angels lies only in obedience to God's will. And with equal joy, they would lift a Lazarus in his rags to Abraham's bosom or a chariot of fire to carry an Elijah home. G.K. Chesterton put it this way, angels can fly because they take themselves so lightly. I think that's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. Don't take yourself so seriously. Don't be worried about who's first. You are incompetent, ignorant, illiterate fishermen. You do not have what it takes to run the church. You're going to have to depend on your father. You have to be constantly making mistakes and getting up and trying it again. And that's the way the kingdom of God is advancing. And by the way, every step of the way, looking behind you, and making sure those that are following are okay, are taken care of, are still with you, are still strong. So how do you do this? It's hard enough to live. When I was uh, in New York, one of the uh, first things that I was told was, just living here is going to be hard. You've got to take care of yourself or have somebody take care of you. 
because otherwise you're going to burn out. You're going to become exhausted. Life is hard. Bad things will happen. What resource does God give us to serve others like this, to be the servant of all? Well, to understand what we have been given, you have to remember what the fundamental human problem is. The fundamental problem at the core of everything is a great lie. A great lie that the Bible records right in the beginning in Genesis. At the very beginning of the Bible, God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Literally, that means a walled garden, i.e. cultivated nature, safe, perfect, abundant, no problems. But he gives them an opportunity to show their obedience and faith and love of him by telling them there's only one kind of fruit that you should need in this garden. Everything else is yours. In fact, everything is yours. Just stay away from this one tree, this one fruit. And everything is perfect until through the serpent, the great lie enters the garden. Eat the fruit. It probably tastes great. Otherwise, why would God keep it to himself? God is holding out on you. If you're going to listen and follow him, if you're going to be obedient to him, you're going to miss out. The best things in life. God doesn't want you to enjoy the best things of life. You've got to start looking out for yourself. You've got to look out for number one. You are on your own in the world. You're an orphan. Poor you. All from that single fruit. If you follow God, if you obey him, you're going to miss out on the world because he doesn't really love you. He doesn't seek your best. He isn't going to give you everything you want. And everything falls from that. People start striving for themselves, to make a name for themselves, to advance their kingdom, their agenda, their wealth, their power, their authority, because they believe that God's not going to take care of them. How do you fight that lie? And really, the Christian church and Christians are the counterculture to that lie. People who do have faith that God loves them. People who do not consider themselves orphans in the world. How are we reminded of that? How are we strengthened against the lie? Well, there are two sacraments in the Christian church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And their purpose is to refute the lie, to deny the lie, to demonstrate that it's not true. We saw at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. That's what baptism is. It is God's blessing 
It is being washed clean by the blood of Christ and being made part of the family, participating in the family table, now able to talk to the Father as our Father. That is, your Father, my Father, Jesus' Father, our Father. Baptism means that we are part of the family, that God has reached down and said, you are mine. You are now in the family. There is a place for you at the table. There is a place for you in my home. You can bear my name. You can call out to me anytime that you want, and I am delighted in you. I love you. You are my child. And every time you think of your baptism, you are being reminded of that truth, no matter what the world says. And that's why it's a means of grace. Every time we feel disgusted with ourselves, every time that we feel rejected by others, afraid, worthless, remember your baptism and God saying, you are mine. But then there's another means of grace. Baptism is the beginning. It is the way that we enter the family. We become Christians. But then we have the Lord's table. What does that mean? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says this. The greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father confirmed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. He's talking about the Lord's table. If you are a Christian, if you've been baptized, then there is a place at God's table forever, reserved by you, by name, never going to be taken away. Nobody else will take your seat. It is yours forever. If you have a table in God's kingdom, in God's home, if you have a relationship with him, you don't have to worry about what the world says about you. You don't have to strive for anything else. You have been given, literally, the kingdom. I'll end with this. George Herbert uh, was a, a pastor, poet, songwriter. He was born into a wealthy and artistic family in Wales. He had a ding distinguished career at Cambridge, he uh, was a member of parliament in England. He uh, was in the court of the king. But he gave it all up in his 30s to become a pastor because he had an encounter with God. And he wrote a sort of prayer poem. Our God and King, who called your servant, George Herbert, from the pursuit of worldly honors, to be a pastor of souls, a poet, 
and a priest in your temple, give us grace, we pray, joyfully to perform the task you give us to do, knowing that nothing is menial or common that is done for your sake. Amen. That was the prayer of his life. And he stated that a little church in England, a little country church, no glory to it, for the rest of his life. Uh, and he wrote, he wrote hymns, and he wrote poems, and he celebrated the grace that he had received, the honors that he had received from God. And I'd like to end with this. It's my favorite of his poems. He talks about the Lord's table and what it meant to him and why it was so winsome. It's called Love. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, oh my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, I said, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. That's the Lord's table. Set for each of us by Christ at his cost so that we don't have to worry about our standing in the world because we have a place and a standing with God. In a moment, we're going to come to this table. I want you to think about why you are doing that and what it means. It is the way that we are fed to be Christian leaders who serve. It is the way that the family of God grows, a family taking care of each other, focused and centered on God, filled with his spirit, paid for by his death on the cross. That's Christianity. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you did everything necessary for us to draw near to you. More than that, Lord, you have washed us clean and made us suitable to be in your family. And Lord, you feed us through the Lord's Supper so that we can grow into the sons and daughters that you created us to be. Lord, um, help us always to remember that you do love us and deny the lie. Help us to be focused on you. Help us to follow you. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face. We look forward to that because of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.